Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Reckless, soulless, irresponsible, lying idiot. And there, now that I've got your attention, I'm about to elaborate on why that shouldn't matter to anyone in the slightest this coming week. Good morning to you. Good Wednesday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports, and this, the newly reborn DK Sports Radio Podcasting Network. Steelers and Browns kick off Sunday at 1.02 p.m. at Heinz Field. It'll be their first meeting since the you-know-what meeting last fall in Cleveland. And I'm here to insist up, down, and sideways not only that Garrett shouldn't be a variable in the team's preparation for the coming week, but that he won't be. He won't be. If you look at this realistically, if you think about the world the way it used to be in non-coronavirus times, people like me, other reporters, would all be in there looking for some kind of you know, hot headline or exclusive related to this. We'd be going around asking individual guys, come on, what did you really think about when Garrett did that to Mason Rudolph? Whether it was the helmet swinging or his incredibly abominable accusations afterward, five days afterward, that Rudolph had said something to him in a racist context. I'd be doing that. I'd, I'd be. You have to do it. It's not a fun part of the job, or whatever. But it is the job. You you give people what they want to read to some extent. And I'd be looking for it as well. But we're not in locker rooms. We're gonna get Zoom calls. We've already gotten some. And when we bring this up, and it's a completely different setting than one on ones or you know, being able to work around the room. We're not even going to be able to speak with Mason Rudolph this week. I can promise you that. That isn't official yet, but the Steelers have put out a schedule of who they're going to have now through Friday. There's never anyone on Saturdays. Mason Rudolph's not on it for the simple, obvious reason that he's not the quarterback. He's the backup. No one even thinks about Mason Rudolph anymore. So why would they make him available to try to stir this up again? No, but if the rooms were open... 
We'd all get him. You know, he'd be in there, he'd have to deal with it all over again, and there'd be another set of headlines, and then somebody in Cleveland would find out what Mason said and say, hey, Miles, what do you think about what Mason said? And it would go back and forth. That's not going to happen because neither team is available through anything other than Zoom calls. It's just a different world. You know, it's all of us in this video conferencing area where you have to cyber raise your hand to cyber ask a question. You don't get follow-ups. And since you only have one turn, probably about 90% of the time, to ask a question, you're not about to waste it on something that you're almost certain that the other party is just going to say, you know what, I'm not talking about that. What else you got? I mean, there's real topics to go over. The last thing you want to do as a reporter is waste that opportunity if you've only got one. It's just a different world. So I don't think you're going to see as much made of it. Anywhere near as much made of it as if this were the case last year. This portion of Daily Shot is brought to you by our friends at Wiener World downtown. If you don't know this, and shame on you if you don't, they are located at the corner of Smithfield Street and Strawberry Way. They're open Monday through Friday, every day through lunch and into dinner. They've got good people working down there. They've got good food. It's not just hot dogs. They have some of the best fries in town, one-pound fish sandwiches to die for, ice cream. Lots of places to sit and spread out outside safely, up into the alley that's known as Strawberry Way. Terrific setting, terrific people. Help your downtown businesses. Help our friend Denny at Wiener World. Mike Tomlin was the first to be asked about Miles Garrett. This was as part of his weekly press conference yesterday. And this is what the coach had to say, which was more than I thought he'd say. There really is no message. Um, my day-to-day existence kind of kind of relays that message that you suggested. Um, there's a lot on the table in reference to this game in terms of stakes. Um, they're a four and one team. We're trying to remain undefeated. Um, you know, we're not looking for that low-hanging fruit or that uh, reality TV storylines and so forth. Uh, this is a big game here in 2020. Yep, that's how you do it. That's why he's really, really good at this stuff. Say whatever you want about game day decisions or clock management and other things that might tick you off from time to time. But he's pretty good at this stuff. Coaches only look at situations like this, either from the standpoint of crisis management, which to Tomlin's mind already would have been addressed last year, and emphatically so, or whether or not they can use it as a carrot to help get their team more pumped up for the coming week. Well, as he very correctly points out here, no such thing is needed. The Steelers don't need motivation to get up for a game against a 4-1 and opponent that's won four in a row. The Steelers are 4-0. The Browns are 4-1. This is the way the AFC North is shaping up. And, you know, there's also the Ravens at 4-1. So they have... They have... A very easy time getting focused. The Browns come at them with a lot of different things. 
that other opponents haven't. That's another aspect of this. They've got a better running game than anybody they will have faced to date. And don't give me Saquon Barkley because the Giants were going to be so easily rendered one-dimensional that the Steelers could and did just crush Saquon play after play after play. The Browns are also going to be, in their own way, a bigger defensive challenge than the teams they've faced to date. And I say that with a lot of respect for what the Eagles brought, especially up front. The Eagles are more of an interior uh, attacking team. Garrett, of course, is on the outside. And then the third component is Garrett. He's eating people alive right now. He is a turnover-forcing machine. If you haven't seen any of Cleveland's games, if you haven't looked up what Garrett's done on the field, all you need to know is that in the current Defensive Player of the Year dialogue that goes on all through any football season, he's considered to be having a better year than T.J. Watt, and that's got to be close to inconceivable, except that it's real. I'd give him my vote right now over T.J. as well. That's your challenge. That's what you have in front of you. It's not, let's win one for the backup quarterback. It's not going to be a case where Sunday morning Mason Rudolph stands in front of the Steelers' locker room and says, Hey, fellas, that guy did me wrong. Go get him. They, they don't need that. Chooks Okorafor is the right tackle starting for the first time, meaning this season, and he's done really well. To date, he shut down J.J. Watt. I got to tell you, Miles Garrett right now is a far better football player than J.J. Watt. Chooks has his work cut out for him. Garrett slides around the line. What if David DeCastro isn't ready? I don't think he will be. And then you have Kevin Dotson, the rookie at right guard. He's got to shut down Garrett if he's coming through. What if Marquise Pouncey can't go? The word was positive on him yesterday from Tomlin, but that doesn't mean he's going to go or that he's going to be anywhere near 100%. They don't have to worry about ticking him off or sticking it to him. They need to just hold him off, keep him away from Ben Roethlisberger. There's really nothing else to it. But, you know, again, I'm glad that, that Tomlin at least addressed the question the way he did. I liked his response. I would imagine that given a lot of precedent between how Tomlin's players follow his lead on this sort of thing, you're going to you're going to hear a lot of the exact same quote or different variations of the quote beginning this morning when Roethlisberger and Cam Hayward have their respective weekly sessions, but I don't think you're going to get anything resembling bulletin board material. Now, from the Cleveland side, I have no idea. I mean, after, after the garbage that came out of Garrett's mouth last year, nothing would surprise me. Um, he's tried at different points to either walk it back or this was about a month ago where he said he'd, he'd offered to meet Mason Rudolph man-to-man and have a discussion. Again, as if Rudolph had done something wrong other than have his 
head in the way of Garrett's helmet being swung at him. So I don't know what kind of craziness will come from that side. I do know that the Steelers need to stay above it, and I'm fully expecting that they will. When we come back, more football and another annoying character. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Speaking of the NFL and drama, the New York Jets late last night released Le'Veon Bell. And if that's news to you, I'm going to repeat it. The Jets released Le'Veon. There had been some weird back and forth between the player and the head coach over the previous couple of days. Le'Veon apparently upset that he'd only been targeted once for a pass, which he caught for seven yards. And apparently not nearly as upset that the Jets are 0-5. Le'Veon showed his displeasure by going on to Twitter, imagine, and liking tweets that were critical of head coach Adam Gase and liking at least one tweet that suggested the Jets should trade him. Well, <laughs> there you go. Just like that, this portion of Daily Shot is brought to you by our friends at the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank. Go visit their website with their current drive, growsharethrive.org. If you make a $10 donation to the food bank, it'll be matched by an additional $5 for a limited time. GrowShareThrive.org. Le'Veon is, is, is Le'Veon. There's not a whole lot that's going to surprise you at this point. He, he went full-on diva in the later stages of his time in Pittsburgh. Uh, at least... In the social media context, Lev's a weird case. Um, like, Antonio Brown went all the way diva with everything. Lev was the most approachable, friendliest, nicest guy you could deal with. I really enjoyed communicating with him. I, I, I enjoyed being around him. It wasn't until he got somewhere near a social media mechanism that he'd get himself into any kind of trouble because he has this sense that he's supposed to be some grand entertainer. Now, I'm not 
ever going to be in a position to judge anyone's rap skills. But I'm going to presume that he chose football as a career for a reason. And look, social media and sports can mix very, very nicely. There's a part of me that would have loved to have had social media back in, like, I don't know, even the 70s when the Steelers were winning Super Bowls and had all those characters, you know? Everyone talks about them like they were angels or something. I mean, Ernie Holmes shot at a police helicopter in Latrobe at training camp. I mean, these are, these are things that imagine if that had been caught on film and how viral that would have gone. Social media and sports can coexist very, very nicely. What you have to get to, though, and this, I think, applies directly to all head coaches, not just Adam Gase, not just Mike Tomlin, what they have to find is what is it that makes the individual tick? What is the motivator? Is it winning a team championship? Because at the end of the day, it is a team sport with a team goal. You can want and achieve all kinds of individual things along the way. But you've got to be pushed. Your heart has to be in. First and foremost, top of the list, in celebrating a championship with your teammates, with your team, and seeing that as your crest, seeing that as the greatest thing you can accomplish in a team sport. I really, truly believe that social media and that concept can coexist. I don't believe that it can do that for everyone. Social media whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. A lot of football players are on Instagram. Uh, it, 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 it's spread out. There are a lot of different options, but they all come with the same pluses and minuses. And among the minuses is that it becomes an all-consuming vice. I've worked with people. I've worked around people. I've had people work for this company who thought that social media was the thing. This was the goal. This was the be-all and end-all. It was more important than the actual job or the work or the life goal or whatever it was. It was about social media. It does that to people. And I believe that in Antonio Brown, he first became a diva and then got caught up in social media. I don't think it was the other way around. Okay, so the reason I'm bringing up Lev, and it's certainly not because there's any chance whatsoever that he's coming back to Pittsburgh. He's not. Uh, and I'm sure there's going to be some people, probably including in the media, that are going to have fun with that and try to get people talking about it. Not going to happen for about a billion reasons. The reason I'm bringing up Lev is more that I think that his case is instructive toward what the Steelers should be thinking about with Juju Smith-Schuster. I'm not at all comfortable lumping together A.B. 
Lev and Juju just because, you know, they all have their fun on social media and whatever. Those are three extraordinarily different personalities. I mean, they don't they don't share a solar system personality wise. But if there's something that Lev and Juju have in common, it's that social media has seemed and felt very apparently bigger to them than life at times. They've done things on or for social media that jeopardized what they do for a living or, more pertinent to the team sports concept, what would be best for the team to win a championship. Remember that it was A.B. in that locker room in Foxborough who was sitting on the other side of the stalls sending out <laughs> Mike Tomlin's postgame speech on Facebook Live. Still blows my mind. Still blows my mind. I was I was there that night. It's still, I just still can't fathom that it happened. But it did. What makes you think something like that? Well, because social media is just so big. Lev wants to be loved in a lot of different ways. Uh, you've never heard him criticize fans in Pittsburgh or anything like that. It's always, love me, love me, love me. Uh, also, here's my new rap video. And love that, too, even though you look under it and you'll see there's, out of 700 comments, there's probably 698 of them that hate it. It's a really, really big thing to him. So this game that the Jets played on Sunday that doesn't go his way, and I underscore his because he's one individual, the way a mature person or a mature professional football player deals with that is he asks for a meeting with his head coach. He might not get it, but if you're a star player, there's a chance that you will. Adam Gase brought this up uh, himself in his weekly press conference two days ago saying, you know, I, I get it that this stuff's important to some people, but I mean, I'm, you know, I'd prefer always to just hear right from the individual. And he didn't. And then they have to find out. And then imagine how these guys feel. They're going through his Twitter account saying, ooh, he looked, he liked this tweet from, uh, you know, Billy Joe XXXY97083. And then they have to take notations on it and, Somebody has to explain to them what it means when you like it. Uh, what are different definitions of liking it? If he liked it, why didn't he retweet it? Why are there no comments? Why didn't he just say what he meant? And these guys have no use for that crap. They just want to coach football. They just want to run a football team. I, look, I know we're talking about the Jets here. I'm talking about okay, a normal football team that doesn't stink year after year. He went running to Twitter. And the Jets, to their credit, first tried to trade him over the last 36 hours. And then eventually, and this was by nightfall, 
their general manager, Joe Douglas, just put out a statement that said, that's it, we've released him. They said a bunch of nice words about that, about about Lev after that, and then just said, we believe this decision is in the best interests of both parties and wish him future success. You know where they put that message? On Twitter. When we come back, some baseball. back uh, this is something of a baseball subject but it's more about sports history in general and the perils that come with comparing events accomplishments records between eras especially when you start really stretching it out like a century apart and the sports themselves and the people themselves the humans themselves have changed so much in the interim, that it feels almost unnatural to do so. This portion of Daily Shot is brought to you by the personal injury law firm of Luxembourg, Garbett, Kelly, and George. They help people who are hurt in car accidents or need assistance with workers' comp and medical malpractice claims. The attorneys at LGKG pride themselves in doing what they say they're going to do. It's important to them that when they make you a promise, they keep that promise. They've been doing that for over 80 years. LGKG has offices in Cranberry, Newcastle, Beaver Falls, Butler, Elwood City, or you can just look them up online at lgkg.com or call 888-842-5454. Yesterday, of course, marked the 60th anniversary of Bill Mazeroski's home run, the one, the only greatest home run in the history of organized baseball. Every once in a while, you'll see, especially now in this culture of lists, lists, lists everywhere, a top 10 or a top 25 or even a top 50 all-time home runs that'll come out, ESPN, Fox, CBS, whoever will do something like that. We all look, and we can't look. We can't not look, you know? That's part of why lists are so effective. You think your team or your player is going to be represented on there, and you just want to see what the number is, you know? You more often than not, we don't even read the whole article, right? You just kind of scroll down to see where your team is, and you go, ah, it's ridiculous. Every once in a while, somebody puts out one of these lists, these home run lists, and has the audacity, the the ignorance, to put something other than Maz at number one. Yesterday, at exactly 3.36 p.m., which was the time that the ball left Maz's bat and soared over the wall in Forbes Field. I tweeted out something about it like I do every year and just called it exactly what it is, the greatest home run in baseball history. And you know you're always going to get some kind of reaction for it, and I did. I got Joe Carter always comes along. Joe Carter is an easily defeated argument. It was game six. This was 1992. Toronto was in the World Series. They should have been playing the Pirates, of course. They weren't. And Joe Carter 
ended Game 6 with a walk-off home run. It's the only other occasion in World Series history where the game was ended with a walk-off home run. Sorry, not comparable. Blue Jays win the series 4-2. to Nowhere near the drama. Not close. Great achievement for Joe. Great achievement for the Blue Jays. Not at all approximate to what Maz did. There was no upset component to what happened. There was no crazy series that led into the walk-off the way there was between the Pirates and all those Hall of Famers that the Yankees had. There wasn't the strangely lopsided scores when the Yankees would win, and then the Pirates would just squeak one out and call on Elroy Face to produce a three-inning save or a four-inning save before there were even saves to close it out. Every game the Pirates won was hanging on by a fingernail. There was so much drama in this. The Pirates hadn't won a World Series in 35 years, back when that felt like a long time. <laughs> so there's just tons and tons of this stuff. Maz beats Carter, and it's not even close. I have other people uh, bring up Kirk Gibson because everybody remembers him limping around the bases and Vin Scully's great call. I can't believe what I just saw. Sorry. Way too early in the series. Nothing all that spectacular about it other than the fact that Gibson came in and was injured, wasn't supposed to be available, and then he limped around the bases, and there was a beautiful radio call to accompany it. That's it. That's it. Again, wonderful moment for Gibson, for Los Angeles, especially for Vin. That doesn't touch Maz in any any way. But those two don't really get stacked against Maz, at least not commonly. Not as much as this one from way back in 1951. That, of course, is what came to be known and famously so is the shot heard round the world by Bobby Thompson of the New York Giants, who you might have picked up there, won the pennant. Back then, and for the longest time in baseball, there weren't playoffs in advance of a World Series. If you finished first in the National League, you were in the World Series. If you finished first in the American League, you are in the World Series. Well, in this case, two teams tied the end of the regular season so they had to have a one-game playoff so it was more drama than what anyone was used to seeing after a regular season and picture how fired up everybody is now with one and done wild cards and then multiply that and then factor in new york and you can see where everybody got all excited about it that said the man himself spoke into that microphone. The Giants won the pennant, as in the pennant, as in not the World Series. Argument over. Sorry. 
I mean, again, this isn't to be dismissive of what obviously was an incredible moment in in baseball history. But it doesn't compare to Game 7 of a World Series, of a World Championship. The season literally ended with one swing off of a game that was tied, off of a game in which the Yankees tied it in the top of the ninth, after a bottom of the eighth in which Hal Smith hit a three-run homer to put the Pirates ahead by two. And everyone thought Hal Smith was going to be a hero and have his statue all over Pittsburgh. And most people here haven't even heard of poor Hal, who, by the way, passed this past year. All of it contributes to what Maz did. Maz is the first and the happiest to point that out himself. That the reason his home run is held in such high regard, arguably the highest regard, was everything that led up to it. Everything that he and all of his teammates made possible in 1960. That's all part of it. And the fact that one of them happened in New York and the other one happened to New York is actually the only reason anyone could see it differently. Thanks so much for listening to this one today. I love doing the historical stuff. We should have one of these segments every day. Really, really enjoy it. Maybe we'll try another one tomorrow. There's a drive at the deep left field. Look out now. That ball is going by now. It's it over the left field fence for a home run, and the Pirates win it 10 to 9 and win the World Series. Your front door, your car, your gym locker, your gun. Safety is a habit. Learn more about how to keep guns safe and secure. Visit projectchildsafe.org.